Hello and welcome to another Society of Sports Therapists podcast. My name is Ed Pratt and I am the chair of the communications group for Society of Sports Therapists. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr Peter Thane. Peter is a course lead at Birmingham City University for undergraduate sports therapy and works with England GB basketball. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks Ed, thanks for having me. So, um, my first question really is could you just tell us a little bit about where you studied sports therapy and where has that degree taken you so far and what, what are your current roles? I'll just expand on the current roles you mentioned before. Yeah, of course. Um, so, so I first start, started um, studying sports therapy at the, at the University of Hertfordshire um, quite a few years ago now. Um, had a great time there and then following that um, I actually was offered the opportunity to study for a PhD. Um, not, not saying that I ever really thought I would do, but following a third year research project that probably collected far, far too much data and then become quite inquisitive. I um, was quite happy to go down the research route as long as I was able to do some teaching. I was always quite keen to be maybe uh, involved with teaching in some aspect. And it also allowed me to actually um, get some real hands-on experience and actually better years work experience in a, in a professional football club. Um, so I did that for a number of years and then transitioned into being the lead therapist within a non-league setting and stayed there for, for four years, which actually was a real good... Uh, Kind of grounding for me. Um, since then, I've got I've gone on to work uh, for short periods in professional football. Um, also uh, worked with uh, England basketball and GB basketball, and more recently, uh, was very fortunate to go to the Commonwealth Games um, as the lead therapist with the men's team um, out in Australia last year. Um, I've also worked in Super League netball um, just off the back of us. We just finished that season, um, so that was a good experience as well. So really. I guess my role, um, or my main role now, aside from clinical work, is that I am the course leader for the for the undergraduate um, uh, sports therapy program at Birmingham City University. But that's not my only job. I'm very keen to maintain my clinical work, and and and, and I guess I'm always open to opportunities, and that probably reflected in working in I guess three main sports. Okay, great. So um, with this podcast, we wanted to sort of discuss. Uh, PhDs a little bit and can you you mentioned there that you had the opportunity to go on and study for your PhD and can you just briefly tell us about your your own PhD um, what what you um, and what you sort of researched and, and studied yeah so my, 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 my PhD was uh, it, 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 it really changed throughout the period of, of the four years that it was um, in the end. So I really started off with an interest in cryotherapy, ice application, looking at the effects of it, potential on performance, and seeing also if we ice people and return them back to play, would that put them at an increased risk of injury? So I started with that um, in the first year, uh, and that was my first publication, um, looking at the effect of ice on muscle reaction time. But as I started to do that, I then realized that some of the actual methods that were used to analyze reaction times could potentially be improved so I actually went down more of a sort of uh, methods uh, kind of alignment in, in the PhD having said that most people would probably say that my PhD was based on ice um, albeit only one of potentially five studies actually is but that's really my main area I would say still of interest so I used to write a few blogs I've got a couple of blogs out there for um, on, on, on um, particularly on Tom Goom's website on the running physio that really started out because there was a lot of when Twitter started, a lot of people were making some comments about ice, and I was right in the phase of kind of researching that, and was very keen to kind of put across my thoughts based on the research. So, I guess most people would think that um, all my work's ice related, but actually only a very small part of it is. 
Okay, wonderful. So, um, recently you, you commented on uh, a sort of a new acronym that had come out for the management of soft tissue injuries. Um, that was the sort of peace and love um, acronym. And you commented about the sort of the absence of ICE or the, the avoidance of ICE within that acronym and its explanation. So if you just want to expand on that a little bit, please. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think in, in clinical practice, I think, and as researchers, everyone's trying to create new acronyms. Um, personally, I, thought, I, I, I didn't think the one by Chris Bleakley on, on, on police with clearly highlighting optimal, or optimal loading, um, I actually still think that's a very good acronym. Uh, Peace and love, I can understand maybe where that's come from, but it is it's quite lengthy. Um, but the, but the main the, the main the main um, the main area that, that I was a bit confused on, I'm not confused, but I didn't think it should be in there, was the section that's under the P section, which is A for avoid anti-inflammatories. Um, and I think here it says avoid taking anti-inflammatory medi medications as they reduce tissue healing. Well. I think yes, that is excellent advice. We know there's excellent evidence to say actually we shouldn't be taking anti-inflammatories because the inflammatory process is vital; it's needed, um, and that's very different between understanding what inflammation is and actually what swelling is. Swelling is obviously clearly a byproduct of the inflammatory process, and we need the inflammatory process to start that repair process. But on the end of that, a was was essentially it said avoid icing. Well. Ice application has been proven to have excellent analgesic, essentially pain relief effects. Um, so I'm, I, I was a bit uh, miffed as to why it's down as a void. Um, I would say it's much better to use ice topical cooling for pain relief rather than potentially consuming paracetamol or other pain meds. I guess the reason where that's probably come from is, is there, has been, there has been some evidence, um, albeit very minimal evidence, um, where people have been suggesting that perhaps ice delays the healing process. I mean, I have to say that all of that evidence and even the evidence that is linked in the article um, refers to studies um, essentially done in the laboratories on, on rats. Um, so there were some studies that started to appear really in about was 20, 2011 20, uh, through to about 2016 where in individuals would be in the laboratory setting inducing muscle damage on, on rats. And, and then measuring markers such as you know growth factors, looking at how it affects macrophages and other markers coming in, and they started to see that perhaps they may be slowed down. I must say there was a, there was a more recent paper by Ramos in 2016 that actually showed that the actual um, laying down of collagen wasn't actually altered. But I guess my main concern is um, that all these studies have been done on animals, and actually does that actually translate into the human model? It, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's very good to do this, or you can argue it's very good or not, but these studies on animals, they have very little adipose tissue. So, so naturally, if you pull something down, you're essentially going to be right on a tissue that's really in the affected area. Whereas if we apply it to the human setting, you're going to be applying an ice pack over someone's quadricep. They may have a centimetre or more of, of adipose tissue. The quad might be where the injuries might be sitting two centimetres, three centimetres deep. So really... Your, your, your kind of effects of ice, are they really affecting deep within the muscle? If we, if, if, and I, I think just to agree on that, if we go back to the initial preface that was ice is, um, is good at stopping swelling from probably the kind of early 1990s or, or probably before that, that was based on laboratory experiments where we knew that you could reduce the, um, you could reduce the demands of oxygen of, of kind of healthy tissue on the periphery of an injury. And the idea was that ice would, would essentially slower the metabolic rate. But actually, again, this was on, on rats. And it's only when we come to test that um, or start to think about that in the human model that we realize we can't actually get down to the required temperatures of 10 degrees 
three centimeters inside the human tissue. So that's really where I think we've done well in the past few years, albeit a bit late, um, which has taken a while to come through to the public, that maybe icing isn't or has no effect on swelling. But I think we're at danger here now to go back to where we were in the early 1990s and go back to the laboratory setting, looking at animals and then trying to trying to almost you know apply that information into the human model. So for me, until there is experimental good experimental evidence to show that actually ice is a detriment in the human model, I think we should be using ice applications as a very good uh, modality to reduce uh, a, a patient's uh, pain. Yeah, lovely. That's that's great. So, um, thank you, thank you for that response on that. And uh, um, so, an interesting sort of account of your your ex experience, and I I certainly didn't realise that that sort of um, how much more there was to your to your PhD from when we've spoken in the past and things like that. So that's good. That's good to know. Um, we we also see an increase increasing number of sports therapists progressing towards like PhD study um, and uh, just interested to get your views on why this is a good option or what advice do you have um, for any prospective PhD students? Yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's a really, really good question. And I think, I think the first thing to say um, really, or, or, or my, or my best advice is that you have to do something that you love. Um, uh, you know, I've almost stolen that, 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 that quote from Steve Jobs, but you know, a, a PhD full time is, can be three to four years. So part time, you're looking, it could be as many as six. Um, so you have to really, from the outset, love what you're doing. You have to be really inquisitive and really want to do the, the PhD is the first thing I'd say, because as you progress through it, there will be difficult times. There will be hard times and there'll be times where you potentially think about quitting. So that, that's okay if you started off with the premise that you are really interested in it and you've got a passion for it. But if you go into a PhD just thinking, okay, maybe I've been offered this, I'm not sure it's for me, then I would suggest don't sign up for it then because you have to really have a vested interest in what you're going to be entering because essentially you'll be running a project on your own. Um, we've, we've obviously guided some supervisors, but it's, it's really your focus for the next kind of extended period of time. I think what we've seen... I think what we've seen more recently, and, and rightly so, is research shouldn't be done just for research's sake. Uh, it really needs to have that applied setting. So how is this going to affect, if you're thinking about sports therapy, how is this going to affect clinical practice? It needs to have a meaning. And there are some individuals that say that there's maybe a disconnect between out-and-out -out researchers and what happens on maybe a football pitch and those constraints in a professional environment, for example. So I think what we've seen now is particularly... Um, at my own institution, we've had four uh, advertisements for individuals um, to be associated with either a professional or non-professional sporting team, whether that be rugby, football, and more recently swimming, um, but also be uh, a PhD student uh, as well. So what we've got there is we've got someone who's got a real interest in in the area. So they, they or they have applied to a specific area and they've got an interest um, in in kind of that inquisitive nature of scientific inquiry, but they've also that they're actually doing that investigation or research within the applied setting already so it's a bit of a win-win because they're getting really good applied experience so if they're a, if they're quite a new graduate they're they're almost being given the opportunity to work maybe within an academy setup so good clinical skills but they're also then uh, gaining a higher degree and they're also really to, uh, it also gives them the opportunity to make their research really applied i mean we've been able to get these opportunities because it's really good from the club's point of view you know they 
very busy, as we all know. Um, clinicians are, are kind of run off their feet, don't often have time to conduct research. So, but that, but having said that, they often have many questions they want answered. So, by having these collaborations, we can give the club um, essentially a part-time member of staff who actually will answer some of their questions they may have, whilst the student then gets to complete a PhD and obviously have a high reward at the end of it. Lovely, good. That's good advice. Thank you. Um, so, just just sort of coming on, we're just going to wrap, wrap start to wrap this podcast up. Um, given that you've had like various roles in elite sport with netball, with basketball, um, and that things seem to be changing quite rapidly um, in terms of elite level sports and, and the therapists that are now being employed and recognised for the skills, not just the, the title. Um, so we've already seen with the, the FA and the RFU and the, how the guidelines have changed there, the recommendations. Um, and so the opportunities for, for graduate sports therapists seem to be changing a bit as well. So um, what, where do you think things are going um, in terms of sports therapy and the opportunities that are available, perhaps in sports where we haven't, haven't had as much work in the past? Yeah, no, I think it's a really, really good point. I think it's, I think it's really, really relevant. I think, I think what we've seen over the, over, probably over the last ten years, Rory, is there are, there are, there are, um, there are considerable more jobs available to sports therapist graduates now than there was ten years ago. You know, ten, fifteen years ago, you would look for a sports therapy job in professional football, and there was never anything advertised. Just in the last, I think, the last month, I've seen at least two sports therapy jobs advertised in professional football. I think that's come about because actually, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you would have had a, you know, you'd have one or two, you know, medically trained clinicians within a first team. Now we know in the in the very top club, high level clubs, you can have up to, you know, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. So clubs are now, um, you know, if you take if you take Arsenal for an example, I think they had um, Ben Ashworth there, who was a shoulder specialist. So now clubs are looking at areas and maybe getting specialists in certain areas. So. I think that's where we've seen a change. It's come in line with the change in sports science, in particularly uh, areas such as the FA in football and obviously the RFU with rugby. I think we've got in some of the smaller clubs that potentially, or not smaller clubs, but maybe uh, sports who have lesser funding. So if you take basketball, uh, who would have a significant less uh, funding than, than some of the other main sports, we also probably netball as well. There's often only one practitioner or medically tra trained practitioner that's associated with a team. And if you've got a long-standing history of, of individuals um, who maybe have come from a certain background, you know, if they are physiotherapists, then then, then naturally they're going to uh, uh, maybe insist that the, the one sole practitioner has to be a physiotherapist, and that I think um, can be, you know that can be that, that can be justified, and, and that individual I can understand that if that's the only profession that they know. Where I think football and rugby have changed is we've managed to get sports therapists in these areas. And actually, um, you know, physiotherapists, sports rehabilitators are now recognising the qualities that sports therapists particularly have. Um, in my own role, when, when I was with the Seven Stars, you know, there as kind of lead therapist, I went out to uh, to advert to look for uh, two individuals to, to look after or be in the role with the team during the week. And I didn't stipulate they had to be sports therapists or had to be physiotherapists. What I wanted was a musculoskeletal specialist who had experience in sport. Now, for me, it's more important that I employ someone who has the skill set and can do the job rather than a specific title. And I think that's where we'll be going. I, I, I think we've seen some great change in football rugby. I think that will continue to change 
as long as we get more sports therapists in and around these sports, and that people can start to realise and recognise the actual skills and attributes that a sports therapist can bring. Perfect, lovely. Well, we'll wrap it up there, Peter. I'd just like to thank you for your time today. Um, it's been really informative. I hope our members will get a lot from this podcast. Uh, certainly, if they're thinking about studying for a PhD. Um, and thank you very much for for joining me today. No problem at all. Thank you.